Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 10th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. Today's mini editorial is from the Journal Editorial Board, and they write, Consider these the chipper days of winter. Get out there while it's warm and chip that ice off your driveway. And now for the five-day forecast. Today will be freezing in the uh, morning and then some sun in the afternoon with a high today of 41 and a, a low of 25. Wednesday is going to be colder with clouds and sun. It will be a high of 30 and a low of 20. Thursday is going to be breezy with periods of sun with a high of 25 and a low of 14. Friday will be clouds and sun both with a high of 26 and a low of 21. And Saturday will be warmer again, milder with times of clouds and sun with a high of 41 and a low of 27. City Council greenlights reconfiguration of portion of 6th Street to 3-lane roadway. The Sioux City Council voted Monday in a split decision to approve a resolution to reconfigure a portion of 6th Street from a four-lane roadway to a three-lane roadway with bike lanes and trail on each side. But Mayor Bob Scott and Mayor Pro Tem Dan Moore voted against the resolution. City staff requested the reconfiguration of 6th Street from Lewis Boulevard to Hovind Drive in connection with the 6th Street bridge redecking project. Staff selected option number one, which consists of matching the existing bridge width, three lanes, and a 10-foot trail on the south side of the bridge, as well as a six-foot bike trails from Chambers Street to Lewis Boulevard. Option number two included widening the bridge, four lanes, plus 10-foot trail on the south side of the bridge, and no bike lanes. Before the vote, City Engineer Gordon Fair told the Council that westbound trucks that are turning north on Hovind Drive are having a hard time making that turn without hitting the median or corner. If we expanded the bridge on that end, we'd have to relocate the signal back. This street was designated as a prime candidate for lane reduction through the DOT, Fair said. It not only prevents us from having to move the signal, it actually helps us reduce the cost of the bridge redecking. Scott expressed opposition to the plan to reconfigure to three lanes, asking Fair, what do we do, what do we gain? I know you already told me I'm not buying the story, Scott said. What trucker has a hard time? Most trucks that are coming into Sioux City use 10th Street because they're going to Cargill, or they're coming from the south and they're going north on Hoven. They aren't ever hitting 6th Street. Ferriset trucks will be able to make a wider turn going northbound under the reconfiguration recommended by staff. Scott said trucks turning right will back up traffic that can currently get by on the left. Councilman Alex Waters noted that the roadway could remain four lanes, but that there would be added expenses associated with that. This is going to go down in history as one of our more brilliant moves, Scott remarked. Annual average daily traffic for 6th Street from Chambers Street to Lewis Boulevard is 7,600. The type of road configuration recommended by city staff and approved by the council is to be implemented on roadways with current and future daily traffic of 25,000 or less per the United States Department of Transportation Federal Highway Administration. Sioux City Virtual School reduced core high school courses. After two years of operation, Sioux City's virtual school is being gutted next year. 
the Virtual Institute for Brighter Education, or VIBE Academy, will be reduced to high school only in the 2023-24 school year and will no longer be a standalone school. Instead, it will be part of the Career Academy. The VIBE Academy, which had been strongly advocated by former Superintendent Paul Gausman, came into existence less than two years ago to allow students to attend school without being in a school building. The Academy moved into a recently renovated $1.3 million space just a few weeks ago, but has been beset by falling enrollment. Another change, merging the alternate school students into the virtual school program is also coming. The changes are expected to save the district $1.8 million in a year. The board unanimously approved the changes during Monday's regular school board meeting. Virtual core classes will be available for high school students who need them for factors such as anxiety, illness, credit recovery, or for other reasons, Associate Superintendent Angela Bema said. If needed, school students will work with the district to attend supplemental and elective classes through a third-party program known as Edunity, Bema said. We know there's a need for this virtual instruction, and this is a way we could still fiscally be responsible to provide this opportunity, Bema said. Superintendent Rod Erlingwine said the decision to remove the K-8 through levels from the virtual school was made based on continued enrollment declines in grades kindergarten through 8th grade. School Board President Dan Greenwell said VIBE enrollment was 63 students in kindergarten through 5th and 75 in 6th through 8th. Early Wine said grade levels were being combined, such as kindergarten and first graders being in the same class. The numbers are not sustainable, Greenwell said. The cost of Vibe Academy totals $2.1 million for the 2022-23 school year, according to a presentation to the board. The projected cost for the Academy is $662,856 for the 2023-24 school year, all in personnel costs. The Academy employs 19 teachers, two school counselors, one office manager, and one principal. Students can take all classes in the district online, including art, music, and physical education. The new virtual format will have between four and six teachers and a counselor. The principal position was eliminated. All the staff members will still be employed by the district in different positions and will not suffer pay cuts, said Human Resource Director Jen Gomez. Bima said many of the teachers have already chosen new positions for next year. The Vibe Academy staff just moved into their permanent home, a space near their career academy. The district paid $1.3 million to remodel the space. Elementary and Secondary School Emergency Relief, or ESSER, funding was used for the project. The space was built to be flexible. Greenwell said it wasn't a waste to build out the space when it could be used for future growth or other programs. The district's alternative school for students that are at risk, suspended, is currently held in a facility leased from the Boys and Girls Home. Bemis said the alternative school is currently reliant on independent study and students would benefit from a teacher interactions daily. She said this change would be a way to enhance the alternative school program. The alternative school costs $531,472 for the 2022-23 school year. The projected cost is $183,777 for the 2023-24 school year, all in personnel costs. The combined schooling would be overseen by the Career Academy principal, who already oversees the alternative schooling. The virtual school was approved by the State's Department of Education in February of 2021. It was going to be advertised to the entire state as a virtual school. 
There were 330 students enrolled in the VIBE Academy as of September 23rd. That's around a 190 student decrease from the previous year. Because students can enroll at any time, the number of students fluctuates daily. Greenwell said in October the low enrollment is below earlier estimates. With the current low enrollment, we will continue to evaluate how to best deliver online instruction in the future, Greenwell said at the time. At the time, Early Wine said the district constantly looks at the sustainability and viability associated with every program offered. Greenwell said there, was, there needed to be a review of recent VIBE student achievement results compared to in-person learning achievement results. Numerous national studies have shown substantial learning loss gaps in online classes compared to in-person classes, he said. Crystal Cove Lake gets new aquatic residents, South Sioux City. Several thousand trout were delivered to their new home Monday in the 33-acre lake at Crystal Cove Park at the southwestern end of South Sioux City. Fish are stocked twice a year, said South Sioux City Parks Director Gene Maffitt. The cost of stocking fish is paid by fishing license fees. Crystal Cove Park is home to more than 200 species of birds and wildlife, according to the South Sioux City Area Chamber of Commerce and Tourism. Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation to buy Little Sioux Scout Ranch. The new owners of the Little Sioux Scout Ranch have agreed to eventually open the scenic property to, to public outdoor recreation and honor the Boy Scouts' longtime history camping there. The Iowa Natural Heritage Foundation on Monday announced it has signed an agreement to buy the 1,776-acre property from the Mid-American Council of the Boy Scouts of America, which operated the area as a scout camp for more than 50 years. The Heritage Foundation raised nearly $2 million by December 31st when it had to exercise an option to buy the property. The support for this project has been amazing, Heritage Foundation President Joe McGovern said in a news release. Donors have told us they want to see this place protected, staying in one piece and not being developed, but they're also excited to see it open to the public eventually. Lead donations were $500,000 each from Paulina and Bob Schlott of Crescent, Iowa, and the Iowa West Foundation of Council Bluffs, $300,000 from the Gilchrist Foundation of Sioux City, and $250,000 from the Mid-American Energy Foundation, plus hundreds of other private donations. The sale likely will close later this month. As part of the sale, the Heritage Foundation agreed to open the property to the public, maintain a memorial to four scouts killed there in June on June 11, 2008 tornado, and share and honor the Scouts' history at the camp. Located in southern Monona County, on the west slope of the Lus Hills, New Blencoe and Little Sioux, the property consists of woodlands and prairie and includes a 20-acre lake and 25 miles of hiking trails. It's also home to several state-listed endangered and threatened plants and animals. The Heritage Foundation, a nonprofit conservation group, envisions public uses such as hiking, camping, bird watching, fishing, and hunting. The group will work to allow scouts to continue to use the property in the near future while public access and management plans are developed. Declining numbers led the Boy Scout Council to decide it wasn't getting enough use to justify its continued use as a camp. In 2021, the Boy Scouts approached the Heritage Foundation to see if it was interested in buying it. The Heritage Foundation purchased an option to buy the $7 million property and set a goal to raise $2 million by the end of 2022.
The Heritage Foundation will continue fundraising efforts for remaining purchase and management costs. Anyone interested in the project may contact the Foundation's Director of Philanthropy, Abby Hayde Terpstra, at ATR, I'm sorry, let me start that again, A-T-E-R-P-S-T-R-A at INHF.org or call 515-809-5676. Sioux City Council approves new sewer treatment agreement with South Sioux City. The Sioux City Council approved a new 25-year sewer treatment agreement Monday between the City and South Sioux City. There was no discussion on the matter before the Council unanimously voted in favor of the agreement. The Council previously approved agreements of the same length with North Sioux City, Sergeant Bluff, and Dakota Dunes. South Sioux City is building its own $46.4 million wastewater treatment plant next to the Missouri River and north of the Tyson Freshmeats Lagoons. However, South Sioux City will continue to take its residential sewer across the North River Crossing, according to Tom Pingle, the city's utility director in charge of Sioux City's regional wastewater treatment plant. After five deferrals, the council voted unanimously in November 2019 to terminate the existing agreements. The termination notice becomes effective four years after receipt of the notice. The previous agreements with Sergeant Bluff and North Sioux City had been established 39 years ago, while the agreement with South Sioux City had been in place for 38 years. Dakota Dunes, a planned community that borders North Sioux City, entered into a sewer treatment agreement with Sioux City on December 3, 1990. That agreement was subsequently amended and restated on April 12, 1993, May 14, 2007, and October 3, 2016. The agreements had no sunset dates and automatically renewed unless other action was taken and did not provide Sioux City with any remedy when flow limits are exceeded. On November 25, 2019, the City of Sioux City gave notice of termination to the sister cities. They received a letter signed by Mayor Bob Scott warning that the City may end the contracts that govern the amount of waste each community can send to Sioux City's Regional Wastewater Treatment Plant at 3100 South Lewis Boulevard and the rates each city pays. The new agreement with South Sioux City, like their agreements with the other sister cities, will ensure that capacity at the Sioux City Regional Wastewater Treatment Plant does not get over-allocated and implements several new provisions, including a fats, oil, and grease program, odor and corrosion control, monitoring requirements, and discharge limitations, a reopener clause, a user charge plan, and payment to the City of Sioux City. The new agreements will help the sister cities plan for economic growth as well as attract businesses and residents to the region. Sioux City School District received 23 superintendent applications. School Board has decided to interview five. There were 23 applicants for the Sioux City Community School District superintendent position. Of those 23 applicants, the school board has decided to move forward with interviewing five individuals and will announce the two finalists within the month. School Board President Dan Greenwell announced the number during the regular school board meeting on Monday. The first round of interviews will take place this week, he said. Once the two finalists are chosen and announced, community and staff interviews will take place the week of January 23rd. Originally, the finalist announcement was expected to take place January 18th, but Greenwell said it was moved back due to scheduling conflicts. A new timeline will be posted on the district's website.
The superintendent application officially opened on October 20th and closed on December 12th. The board met on January 5th to discuss the applicants and decide who to interview. GR Recruiting reviewed the applications received and identified nine who they believe fit superintendent traits identified by the community. After reviewal, the board narrowed it down to five. The superintendent search process officially began in September with the help of the superintendent recruiting firm of GR Recruiting. Multiple opportunities were furnished in October, including in-person meetings and a virtual survey to learn what the community wanted in a new superintendent. Results showed that Sioux City residents want a superintendent who values ethics and integrity, leads by example through honesty, is an effective communicator, and is accountable for his or her actions. The superintendent traits identified were used to create a profile of the desired candidates for the position. Dick Christie of GR Recruiting said it could also be used to guide interview questions for potential candidates, entry plans for the chosen candidate, and a guidance for the current interim superintendent and new superintendent goals. Interim Superintendent Rod Erlingwine, who started his new job on July 1st, was selected as interim superintendent in April after former superintendent Paul Gausman was selected as the new superintendent of Lincoln Public Schools. Early Wine resigned as the superintendent of the Sergeant Bluff Luton Community School District in February of 2022 after 27 years with the district. CORE predicts below normal runoff into Missouri River in 2023. After a year of drought led to below normal runoff totals in the Missouri River in 2022, river managers expect more of the same in 2023. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has forecast 2023 runoff into the river basin above Sioux City to be 20.8 million acre-feet, 81% of the average of 25.7 MAF. The 2022 total was 19.3, 75% of average and the 30th lowest total in 125 years of record keeping. Despite the low runoff totals and ongoing water conservation measures, enough water remains in the river for water supplies for water supply needs, the Corps said. Releases from Gavin's Point Dam near Yankton, South Dakota, were raised to 14,000 cubic feet per second in mid-December to mitigate some of the effects of frigid temperatures. Releases will be reduced to 1,300 cubic feet per second on Monday and to the minimum winter rate of 12,000 on Thursday. Releases from Gavin's Point Dam will be adjusted to the extent practical to help mitigate any negative effects of the cold weather. We know the importance of our operations to water supply. John Remus, Chief of the Corps Missouri River Basin Water Management Division, said in a news release. Water storage in the River Six Reservoirs remains below the flood control zone, and the Corps expects to begin the 2023 runoff season on March 1st at 45.7 MAF well below the flood control zone that starts at 56.1. The Corps reported mountain snowpack that feeds the upper river basin when it melts in the spring is accumulating at slightly above average rates. As of January 1st, snowpack ranged from 103% to 111% of the average. More than half of the mountain snowfall typically falls from January 1st to mid-April and peaks around April 17th. Plain snowpack is currently above normal throughout much of the basin after a number of storms dropped heavy snowfall totals across the region in the past month. Council Greenlight's Goodwill Rezoning Request 
The Sioux City Council voted unanimously Monday to approve a rezoning request so that Goodwill of the Great Plains can build a new adult day hab rehabilitation center and a maintenance building across the street from its campus at 3100 West 4th Street. The 3.4-acre tract of land will change from neighborhood conservation to general commercial, which is intended for commercial, retail, service, and office uses arranged on individual sites or in multi-tenant centers. Bridget Solomon, Goodwill of the Great Plains CEO, told the journal on Friday that the existing adult day habilitation program has been in operation for more than 20 years and has continued to grow. She said the new facility will be more modern and allow Goodwill of the Great Plains to expand its mission. The multi-use community center will include a gym, gaming room, and spaces for programming such as an arts and culture room, according to Solomon. She said meeting rooms and office space for staff are also planned. We are hoping to be able to do our Goodwill-sponsored events, such as our career fairs that we host through our job center. Our Christmas shoe and mitten party will be hosted in that location. And we just need more space to do all of those things and continue to carry out our mission, she said. Solomon said building the Adult Day Habilitation Center on the, is the focus of the project's first phase. The maintenance building would be constructed during the second phase. That building would allow good, Goodwill of the Great Plains to expand job training opportunities and provide enclosed storage for its fleet vehicles. Solomon said she hopes to open the new Adult Day Habilitation Center by the end of 2024 or early 2025. Since the project is still in its early stages, she said plans have not been finalized and the total cost is still being calculated. She expects those things to be finalized in the next couple of months. Goodwill of the Great Plains served more than 28,000 people in the region in 2022 based on preliminary data. Rural Plymouth County House Fire Deemed Accidental a malfunctioning ceiling fan was the likely cause of a Monday morning fire at a home north of Sini in rural Plymouth County. At around 2.50 a.m. Monday, Lamar's Fire Rescue was called to a house fire on 120th Street at Highway, 16, uh, Highway 60. Upon arrival, family members and pets were safely outside. Firefighters discovered the fire above the ceiling in an upstairs bedroom in the attic space. Firefighters removed the ceiling and put out the fire. They were on the scene for an hour and a half. The fire was determined to be accidental and damage was contained to the accident space just above the upstairs bedroom. There was very little damage to the rest of the house. Lamar's Fire Rescue has assist, was assisted at the scene by the Plymouth County Sheriff's Office, the Owens and Orange City Fire Departments, and Campbell's Electric. Sioux City Man Charged with Sexual Assault of Teen A Sioux City man has been arrested on charges of sexually assaulting a 14-year-old girl at her father's home on Christmas. Michael R. Brown, 33, was arrested Saturday and booked into the Dakota County Jail on charges of first-degree sexual assault of a child and child abuse. His bond has yet to be set. According to court documents, Brown, a friend of the girl's father, had sex with a girl in her room on the South, in the South Sioux City home on December 25th. The teen told a South Sioux City police officer Brown had tried to touch her in the past, and she and her cousin went to her room when he arrived. 
Brown entered the room later in the evening, and after her cousin left, the two began playing a slapping game, and Brown grabbed the girl's breast, a complaint filed in Dakota County Court said. Brown then cursed the girl, who said she didn't want to cause a scene, so she paralyzed herself while Brown began touching her and removed her pants and underwear, and began having sexual contact with her until the girl's cousin returned and sat down on a separate bed in the room. Brown then placed the girl on his lap and had sex with her while recording video on his phone. The girl got off Brown's lap when her father came upstairs and Brown went downstairs. The girl told her cousin not to say anything to anyone, but the cousin later told the girl's father what happened. When interviewed by police, the girl's father said Brown had been texting him and asking him when the girl was going to be home. Reynolds appears in ad advocating school choice. Iowa Republican Governor Kim Reynolds will appear in a new 30-second ad promoting legislation that would create state-funded private school scholarships. Priorities for Iowa, a conservative political action committee based in Des Moines, launched a six-figure ad buy across Iowa in support of Reynolds' school choice legislation. The group announced the new ad Monday, featuring the governor in a classroom discussing the need to give parents more choices for their children's education. In the video, Reynolds states Iowa has increased school funding by $1 billion in the past decade. But money alone isn't the solution. Parents also need choice, Reynolds says in the ad, to send their kids to whatever school is best for them regardless of income or zip code. Iowa House Republicans have pushed back on the voucher program for the past two years over objections from rural school districts who fear the proposal would sap state aid to public schools and limit course offerings, lead to larger class sizes and force more school consolidations. The proposal, which was a major plank of Reynolds' re election campaign and one of her top priorities for the newly begun 2023 legislation session would have taken about $5,360 out of a public school for each student who took advantage of the program for use at a private or charter school. That plan would have made 10,000 scholarships available for to families. The plan included a provision that distributed some of the students' per-pupil funding to rural schools to mitigate some of the negative effects. The Iowa State Education Association, a teachers' union in Iowa, criticized the ad Monday. Iowa families already have a choice in where they send their students to school, ISEA President Mike Baranek said in a statement. Iowa families do not want to use public money for private schools to pick and choose who they will admit. Private school vouchers pull critical resources from public schools, which educate 90% of our students. Iowa families choose public money for public schools. Iowa GOP vows more conservative policies. Emboldened by six years of conservative reforms under their belts and multiple elections that expanded their majorities in the Iowa legislature, Republicans kicked off the 2023 state lawmaking session Monday by promising more conservative action, particularly on K-12 education and property taxes. The 90th Iowa General Assembly met for the first time at the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines. In the coming months, legislators will consider hundreds of proposals to make changes to Iowa state law. Iowa Republicans hold commanding agenda-setting majorities, 34 to 16 in the Senate and 64 to 36 in the House. While that margin grew in November's election, this is the seventh consecutive year that Republicans have held complete control of the state lawmaking process by virtue of their majorities in the Iowa legislature with a Republican governor. 
Jack Whitford, the Republican Senate Majority Leader from Grimes, used his opening day remarks to highlight many of those conservative law changes of the past six years, including multiple rounds of state tax reductions, a dramatic reduction of collective bargaining rights for public workers, changes to the state's election laws and judicial nominating process, restrictions on legal abortions, and the expansion of gun rights. Republicans in the Iowa Senate do not shy away from hard work or hard decisions, and Iowans have rewarded us for it, Whitford said. With the historical successes we have had, I think it's safe to say that we are ready for bigger, bolder, and better. Democratic legislators, who by virtue of being outnumbered, are unable to influence the lawmaking process with their votes, make call, made calls for bipartisan work in the legislature and called on Republicans to work on legislation that will benefit all Iowans. Zach Walls, leader of the Senate Democrats from Coralville, said lawmakers' focus this year should be on Iowa's stagnant population growth and shortage of workers. It's been called a brain drain and a workforce crisis, but this challenge is really bigger than that. What we face is a people crisis, an exodus in the state of Iowa, Walls said. Whether it's growing wait lists for childcare, bigger class sizes in our public schools, or the shuttering of labor and delivery units at hospitals across our state. This crisis threatens the future of Iowa and is holding us back every single day. Everything we do this session should be focused on this crisis. Republicans pledged action on three main topics, property taxes, funding for K-12 private school students, and expanding transparency in K-12 public education. Republicans plan for a third consecutive year to work on legislation that would set aside state funding for private school tuition assistance. Previous attempts were supported by Governor Kemp Reynolds and passed the Senate, but stalled in the House. During her successful 2022 re-election campaign, Reynolds supported challengers to incumbent Republican state lawmakers who did not support the private school tuition assistance bill. Speaking at the Republican Party of Iowa's annual legislative breakfast Monday morning, Reynolds said voters gave Iowa Republicans a mandate to continue to be bold in pursuing an agenda that puts parents and students first when it comes to their education, that fights back about the liberal woke agenda that's being shoved down our throats from Washington, D.C. and continues to keep our community safe. And she called Republicans' dominance in the 2022 state elections a red tsunami that shows Iowans like the direction Republicans are taking this state. While previous so-called school choice proposals died in the House, Republican Speaker Pat Grassley has been more optimistic about some form of legislation passing this year. He formed a new committee, which he will chair, which is not common for a House Speaker, to address education policy, including private school tuition and K-12 transparency. He said that legislation will be a House Republican's top priority this session. Grassley added that while state-funded private school scholarships are an important part of that discussion, we believe it's just part of that much broader reforms that we will see, he said. With a variety of policy ideas, some of which will look familiar, we can provide greater choice to Iowa parents and keep our public school system strong, Grassley said. We are crafting creative solutions to the issues that have plagued our state for years, like workforce shortages. We're digging deep into the issues that are oftentimes deemed too complicated to address, like property taxes. And we're acting on the concerns we hear consistently from our constituents and are pushing back against the radical social agenda being forced upon us and our children by the left. 
Iowa House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst of Windsor Heights reiterated the House Democrats' position of putting people over politics, a message they unveiled during the 2022 campaign, and urged House Republicans to remember the wishes of their constituents. My charge to you and to us is to use this new House of Representatives as an opportunity to set politics aside and do the work for the people, Confirst said. We all knocked on a lot of doors last spring, last summer, last fall, and we talked to our constituents about what they wanted. Let's remember what they told us when drafting legislation. Conference said Democrats will prioritize lowering costs for Iowans, legalizing marijuana, increasing funding for public schools, and protecting abortion rights, all issues she said Iowans care about. Listening to voters exactly what House Republicans plan, according to House Majority Leader Matt Winchell, a Republican from Missouri Valley. He said House Republican wins in the 2022 election show the party has a mandate to enact their agenda. Winchell said Republican legislation will be crafted with an eye toward expanding freedoms in Iowa, referencing an amendment Iowans passed designed to enshrine gun rights in the state's constitution. We took a message out. We showed Iowans what we're capable of. We told them what we're going to do and how we're going to govern. And voters said, yes, that is what we want, Winchell said. The first week of the legislative session is largely ceremonial. Legislative leaders gave their session opening remarks Monday. Reynolds will give her condition of the state address Tuesday evening to the Iowa legislature. Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice Susan Christensen will address lawmakers Wednesday, and Iowa National Guard Adjutant General Bill Correll will address legislature Thursday. The session is scheduled to last until late April, but there is no hard deadline for it to end. Iowa sessions often trickle into May and occasionally into June. One of the lawmakers' top priorities each year is to craft the next state budget. Iowa state budget year begins July 1st. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 10th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. There are no obituaries in today's paper. We'll now move to um, college football. And our first story is Hawkeye's Gallery gets College Hall Call. An Outland Trophy winning lineman who helped lead the Iowa football program to some of its greatest success during Coach Kirk Francis' 24-year tenure is a Hall of Famer. Former Hawkeye offensive lineman Robert Gallery was named Monday by the National Football Foundation as a member of the 2023 College Football Hall of Fame induction class. The 11th Iowa player to be selected to College Football Hall of Fame, Gallery lettered as an offensive tackle with the Hawkeyes from 2000 to 2003, earning unanimous consensus All-American recognition as a senior, in addition to winning the Outland Trophy, presented to the top offensive lineman in college football. A first-team All-Big Ten selection who was named as a Conference Offensive Lineman of the Year as a senior in 2003, the Masonville, Iowa native moved into the lineup for the final six games of his freshman season. He went on to help the Hawkeyes to a 28-10 record during his final three seasons, part of a 2001 team which averaged 32.6 points per game on its way to an Alamo Bowl victory over Texas Tech. Gallery anchored the offensive line on a 2002 team which shared the big team championship with Ohio State with a perfect 8-0 record league record and sent a school record with 11 victories. That team, quarterbacked by Heisman Trophy runner-up Brad Banks, averaged 37.2 points. As a senior, Gallery helped lead an Iowa team which finished 
ranked 8th nationally for a second straight season to 10 victories, including a 37-10 win over Florida in the Outback Bowl. Named as the most valuable player on the 2003 Iowa team, Gallery was taken by Oakland Raiders with the second pick in the opening round of the 2004 NFL Draft. He went on to play eight seasons in NFL for Oakland and Seattle, starting 103 of the 104 games he played at the professional level. Previously named to the Iowa Letter Winners Club Hall of Fame and the American East Farmers Wall of Hall at Kinnick Stadium, Gallery is one of 18 players and four coaches selected to this year's Hall of Fame class. The group includes just one other Big Ten player, Wisconsin defensive back Troy Vincent, as well as quarterbacks Michael Bishop of Kansas State and Tim Tebow of Florida, USC running back Reggie Bush, and Notre Dame linebacker Michael Stonebreaker. The entire Hall of Fame class will be officially inducted at the National Football Foundation's Awards Dinner in Las Vegas on December 5th, and each member will be honored individually on their college campus during the fall. And now we have a Huskers football story preview of the tonight's game. Huskers prioritized toughness ahead of Illinois game. Fred Hoiberg's group has won three of his last four games, including a pair of wins over Big Ten foes Iowa and Minnesota. Nebraska sits at 9-7 on the season, and the Huskers are at point are 500 in conference play at 2-2. They're playing with some momentum and enter Tuesday night's game riding the high of an overtime win in Minneapolis on Saturday. However, Hoiberg wants his group to do one thing, put Saturday's win in the rearview mirror. To be able to keep their composure and their poise and go out and play for each other and together in overtime with is, was an important step for this team. Now to come back home, the important thing when you have a big emotional win like that is putting it behind you, Hoiberg said Monday afternoon. Our guys, as they've done all year, they've had a good approach. They've shown resiliency after losses and the ability to put a win behind them. Now it's about going out and playing 40 minutes against a really physical team that's coming off one of their best performances of the season. That physical team is Brad Underwood's Illinois 10-5 comes to Lincoln fresh off a 79-69 win over number 14 Wisconsin. The Alini got off to a bit of a rocky start in conference play with losses to Maryland, Penn State, and Northwestern, but the Huskers have their hands full against a team many expect to finish at the Big Ten standings. Illinois plays with tempo and physicality and has shown a knack for forcing turnovers and controlling the paint. The key to slowing them down boils down to one word. You have to be tough, Hoiberg said. You think a lot of times toughness is just in the defensive end, but for a game like this, you have to have toughness on the offensive end. If you turn the ball over against this team, they're going to make you pay. And if you have live ball turnovers, they turn into layups and dunks. They're very athletic, so it's just a huge point of emphasis to take care of that basketball. Tuesday's game will also be one of just three in the month at Pinnacle Bank Arena. The Huskers are 6-1 at home this season, and that home court advantage has paid dividends, especially in Big Ten, Ten play. Nebraska cruised to a 66-50 win over Iowa and took current number 2 Purdue down to the wire in overtime. Now they'll look to continue their home winning ways against Illinois. It's important to come back and protect your home court in this league, Hoiberg said. You have to do it if you want to have any chance of success, and young guys will be ready. It's always cool to be home and playing in front of our fans, added senior guard Emmanuel Banda Domel. They bring us that energy that we need. They bring us that swagger that we need. 
It's like a sixth man on the court. The other teams feel it. We feel it and brings us the juice. The senior forward finished with 22 points, 8 rebounds, and also ranked up a career-high 7 assists in Sunday's win at Minnesota. It was just the latest proof of how much Walker's game has taken off within the last year. I thought you saw the efficiency Derek played with last year, but he's really improved his off-the-dribble game, Hoiberg said. You saw when Derek was out of the lineup those first five games how much we struggled with pressure. So it's just a luxury to have a front-court player that can Im initiate the offense for you. And the game tonight is Pin at Pinnacle Bank Arena Tuesday at 8 p.m. We'll now move to some entertainment story. Uh, last Friday at the Hard Rock, um, the comedian Tommy Davidson was there, and here's a story about him. For many people, comic and actor Tommy Davidson will always be known for the spot-on impersonations he did of Sammy Davis Jr. and Michael Jackson on the iconic 1990s sketch comedy series In Living Color. Younger people may know him better as Oscar Proud, the well-meaning but overprotective dad from the Disney Channel's long-running animated The Proud Family series. But if you ask Davidson, audiences may also know him as a Chip and Joanne Gaines lifestyle guru in the making. I cook and do some interior design and have my own clothing line called Tongue in Cheek, the self-admitted fixer-upper fan noted. Why can't I get a call from Target? It wouldn't surprise us one bit if the bullseye-branded retailer ended up working with Davidson, a man with a multi-hyphenated amount of talent. A singer as well as a comedian, Davidson brought his act to the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino's Anthem last Friday. He may also help you dress for success, cook a post-show meal while giving the gaming floor a HDTV-worthy makeover. Things weren't always humorous for the veteran funny man. A Mississippi native, Davidson, now 59, said he was abandoned in a trash can at 18 months old. I was rescued by the woman who became my adoptive mom, he said. A child of in, an interracial adoption, meaning a black child adopted by white parents, Davidson was raised with two older white siblings. After his parents divorced, he, his mom, and siblings moved to the Washington, D.C. area. Growing up poor in the city was terrible, Davidson recalled. Growing up poor in the suburbs wasn't any better. Indeed, Davidson was startled by the way his best friend from junior high school lived. After school, my friend took me to his house. Davidson said, chuckling at the memory. I asked him who lives in this house. He said he lived there, and I wouldn't believe him until his mom confirmed it for me. Since I had only lived in tiny apartments inside of buildings, I never knew anybody who lived in their own house before, he continued. That was an eye-opener for me. Just as eye-opening for Davidson was seeing the Jackson 5 in concert. The Jackson 5 weren't even the headliners for the show, he said. It was during their keep on dancing, keep on trucking period, and they were awesome. A true child of the 1970s, Davidson got a taste for acting after seeing sci-fi flicks like 2001 A Space Odyssey and the original Planet of the Apes at the drive-in movie theater. If you add James Brown Live at the Apollo albums into the mix, then you'll discover the performers who inspired me the most. Studying communications at the University of District of Columbia, Davidson made a name for himself on the stand-up comedy circuit. Booked as the opening act for such entertainers as Luther Vandross and Patti LaBelle, he eventually moved to Los Angeles and met Keenan Ivory Wayans, the creator, star, and head writer for In Living Color. 
Premiering on Fox in 1990, In Living Color gave Davidson and such future stars as Damon Wayans, Jim Carrey, Rosie Perez, Jennifer Lopez, and Jamie Foxx their first big breaks. I think the reason we worked so hard to be successful was to keep up with Jamie Foxx, Davidson said. We all played Keep Up With Jamie. Since then, Davidson has appeared in such movies as Spike Lee's Bamboozled, Ace Ventura 2, When Nature Calls, opposite Jim Carrey, and Strictly Business, which starred Halle Berry. He's even winning acclaim as a cast member of The Proud Family, Louder and Prouder, a reboot of the classic Disney Channel cartoon from the early 2000s. With the new version of The Proud Family, now on Disney+, Plus, we're bringing the show to an entirely new audience, Davidson said. That makes me happy. Yet Davidson will always function best when he's working on multiple projects. He recently released a new jazz single, I Know, featuring renowned saxophonist Richard Elliott. Wait, Davidson is releasing music with his own voice and not somebody else's? I love impersonating other people, but can't do it very can't do very many of them, he said. I'm just lucky that I've nailed the few impersonations that I'm best known for. I'm better off with my own voice than anybody else's. Which is a long way from the young man who grew up poor many years ago. As far as I've come, I'm still Barbara Davidson's son, Davidson said. You always want your mom to be proud of you. And our next story is titled Winter Reads. Sue Owens never goes out of town without a book or two in her overnight bag. Must be an occupational habit. I love books, the Western Iowa Tech Community College Lifelong Learning Coordinator explained. I was a librarian for nearly 20 years, so I do know a lot about books. So, what is on Owens' must-read list? Well, I've actually already read it because it is a lifelong learning book club selection, she said, but I'm a big fan of the novel Black Cake. Black Cake, the debut novel of Charmaine Wilkerson, is a rum-soaked page-turner revolving around two estranged siblings delving into their mother's hidden past and how it connects to a black cake, which is a traditional dessert in the Caribbean. As a book, Black Cake has a bit of everything, Owen said. It has betrayals, family secrets, a murder mystery, and even a few recipes. Uh, recipes? Of course, for the black cake and a few favorite Caribbean foods, Owens explained. There is even a Spotify list for the favorite songs of the character. Owens also enjoyed Sarah Novick's True Biz, an absorbing look at life in a school for the deaf. This novel takes you into a world that most people would never know, she said, of a book that delves into disability and civil rights, sign language versus lip reading, and ultimately celebrating the human connection. In case you were wondering, True Biz is an American sign language expression for straight talk or keeping things real. Talking about keeping things real, or for that matter, weird, is Owen's next literary selection, which was recommended by Mara Hall, who was Lifelong Learning's previous coordinator. Mara turned me to Shelby Van Pelt's Remarkably Bright Creatures, which is about a widow's budding friendship with an octopus, she said. With a what? No, it's true. Remarkably Bright Creatures tells the story of Tova Sullivan, a widow who takes a night job mopping the floors and tidying up at the Sowell Bay Aquarium. In addition to dealing with her husband's recent death, Tova is also coping with her 18-year-old son Eric, who disappeared off a boat in the Puget Sound 30 years ago. 
Tova becomes acquainted with Marcellus, a giant Pacific octopus living at the aquarium. Surprisingly, Marcellus, an eight-armed wannabe detective, may have uncovered the truth behind Eric's long-ago disappearance. Owens reasoned that the best books are the ones that transports the reader, literally and figuratively, to a different place and time. Both come into play in Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. Beginning in the 1960s, Lessons in Chemistry tells a story of the life of Elizabeth Zott, who was in charge of an otherwise all-male team of scientists at the Hastings Research Institute. Definitely a woman who was ahead of her time, Elizabeth discovered there was plenty of gender inequality in the scientific community. Years later, and now a single mom, Elizabeth becomes the reluctant star of America's most beloved cooking show, Supper at Six. Elizabeth makes the discovery that TV stars make a better living than scientists, Owen said. But in taking a decidedly scientific approach to the culinary arts, Elizabeth wasn't just teaching women how to cook, she was also telling them it was okay to shake up the status quo, which is an attitude that Owens wants to bring to the lifelong learning program. When I applied for this position earlier this fall, I was ready for a new challenge, she said. I've been getting plenty of positive feedback by lifelong learners who've been with the program for years. And many of those lifelong learning vets have been devoted to the program's many book club options. As we age, books become a way to stay engaged, Owen said. Nothing is better than cuddling up to a good book on a cold winter's night. We'll now move to Dear Abby. Dear Abby, when I was 13, my 10-year-old cousin let a boy we did not know well into my house. Nobody else was there with us. He told her he wanted to make out with me, and he came upstairs. I confronted him and told him to leave. Later on, I told my mother about the incident, thinking I would be commended on my bravery. Shortly afterward, against my will, she insisted my aunt, a hairstylist, cut my long hair up to my chin. I sobbed during the entire ordeal. My hair had given me confidence about my looks, which I needed because I was large-chested and embarrassed about it at that age about it. By cutting my hair against my will, my mother made me no longer trust her and think she didn't love me or like me. In later years, I realized she may have done it so I would not attract boys and there would be less risk of my being harmed by a boy like the one who got into our house. If that was the case, she should have sat me down and explained that the boy could have hurt, raped, or even killed me. I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt. Recently, my aunt and I had a falling out, and I remembered she was the one who actually did the cutting. I am feeling resentment toward her after all these years. I would like parents to know that cutting a teenager's hair at such a vulnerable stage of their development should not be a punishment. It is disrespectful and oversteps a child's boundaries. Am I correct in my thinking? Sign, still remembers in Virginia. And Abby's response, yes, you are. Your mother punished you for being an attractive young girl, which wasn't your fault. What she did was a form of assault and blaming the victim, and it was outrageous. It's a shame your aunt could not have talked some sense into your mother. P.S. You did nothing wrong. Your cousin let the boy into the house, and your cousin should have been lectured about it. Dear Abby, I went through breast cancer a few years ago. My breasts are now two different sizes because of the lumpectomy. I wear a gel prosthetic in my bra to camouflage it, and I am extremely self-conscious about it. Because of this, I have not dated in 10 years. How can I get past this fear of rejection? Signed, Out of the Game in Illinois. Abby's response. I wish you had joined a cancer support group right after the lumpectomy. If you had, you would have received emotional support and tips for dating from other women who have had cancer surgery. Countless women have had breast surgery similar to yours. 
If a potential partner is interested in you as a person, they will not be turned off by the fact that your breasts are not the same size. Many women are born with asymmetrical breasts and live full and happy lives. A way to get past this fear would be to open up and reach out. Another would be to talk to your doctor or a mental health professional. The only thing you should not do is hide yourself away as though having survived cancer is something to be ashamed of. And now we have a letter from the Dear Amy column. I recently did DNA ancestry testing, hoping to locate relatives of my father, who died when I was very young. To my surprise, I found out that I have a niece. I have one brother, and he is a confirmed bachelor, but apparently he fathered a child 40 years ago. When I told him of this DNA results, he seemed surprised. He also indicated that he had no interest in meeting his newfound daughter. I asked if he would object if my son and I reached out to her. He requested that we not pursue a relationship. As the months went by, I felt a longing to meet her. She was already following us on social media, so it seems that she might have already been aware of the relationship before I connected the DNA dots. I only have one son and no nieces or nephews. Against my brother's wishes, I reached out to her and my son and I met her for dinner. I would love to introduce her to my mom, her grandmother, who is 95 years old. I really think she would love to know that she had a granddaughter. Needless to say, my brother was disappointed that I did not respect his wishes and specifically requested that I not tell our mother. I am just heartbroken, but I still plan on seeing my niece. I wish, just wish my brother would come around. Any suggestions? Signed, Anguished Aunt. And the response, you asked your brother for permission to contact your niece and he said no, but you went ahead and did it so anyway. You've asked him about connecting your niece with your grandmother and he has said no. I suggest you do so anyway. Given that your brother didn't know about his biological daughter's existence and has since declared that he does not want to have anything to do with her, I'd say that it doesn't really have any claim on her or any authority to deny other family members access to her. In the next letter, I am one of a group of mothers who have been friends for a long time. Our group includes Betty and Jane. Betty's daughter, Belle, and Jane's daughter, Jill, attended the same school. Belle and Jill used to be good friends, but got crosswise with each other about a year ago. Then their mothers got involved. The situation has escalated to an all-out war between the two families, with accusations and counter-accusations of bullying and the involvement of the high school principal. We friends are trying to stay neutral. We love both these women and their daughters, and we hate to see these hostilities destroying these two families. Do you think there is anything we can do to de-escalate the situation? Signed, Distressed Friends. Given the level of animus and the way it has escalated, I don't believe it is within your power to direct these warring parties to change, but you might be able to influence them to at least consider the larger consequences of this discord and the impact on their friendships. Because you've written to me, you might try to draft a letter to send to both women, send the same letter to both. Without taking sides or relitigating this conflict, you could speak from your heart regarding the impact that has had on your friendship. Recall a positive memory involving both from before this conflict started and tell them how sad this has made you. End with, I wish you would find a way to work this out. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 10th. I'm your reader, Dagna. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. A decade ago, there were typically 20 earthquakes a year that were large enough to feel in the central and eastern U.S. But in 2015, there were over 1,000 of them. Why? It's mostly because we're pumping more water into the ground. The boom in U.S. oil and gas production over the last decade has brought many more oil wells, which also produce water. Most is naturally occurring in the formation, and some was injected by operators to allow or improve the recovery of oil and gas. In both cases, the water will likely have picked up salt and other minerals from the rock, making it many times saltier than seawater. Operators may re-inject this water to continue to liberate oil and gas, but more often, there's too much to handle. So it's trucked or piped to disposal wells where it's pumped down into deep saltwater reservoirs. Adding large volumes of wastewater increases the pressure in these rock formations, which can allow natural faults to slip more easily than they normally would, causing earthquakes. To address these quakes, regulators and the petroleum industry are monitoring disposal wells and shutting down those that could cause damaging seismic activity. And they now think that managing wastewater injection more carefully should help. There's still more work to be done, and university research centers, like the Bureau of Economic Geology, are conducting major studies with the aim of minimizing the risk of earthquakes while maintaining the benefits of domestic energy production. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.